A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like brandy, girth, and helplessness. I thought those are... Are those are slow burners there, Sam. I think if you really think about them for long enough there, you would unpack the most amazing unexpected history. Uh, the, the helpless girth of the brandy drinker, for example. Or, I think we should definitely do that. Or we could do rage, age and the cage, sage, wage and the page. The page is all about letters. Mm. Have mm. we done the page? We've certainly done paper. And I don't think we've done and... the page. I'd love to do the page, oh. Sam, if you're if you're channeling that particular <laughs> epistolary yeah. unexpected <laughs> moment. We'd be loving that. But for the moment, we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of shepherds, one of our recent festive episodes, is in fact all about costume and social status, shepherd staves and the link with bishops, croziers, hooked pastoral staffs of office, for those of you wanting a gloss on that. It's also all about Christian pastoral care and the German Reformation, as well as Christmas carols in the 18th century, medieval mountain life, heresy and the Inquisition, oral histories of post-World War II nativities. Who knew? Uh, who knew that the history of puppies, yes, puppies, <laughs> is in fact all about family blackmail, breeding in the Victorian quest for pedigree perfection, Renaissance portraits, the rise of the pet, theft and property. Oh, all fascinating I stuff. I, I enjoyed our puppies one. Again, that's a very popular, popular episode from our back catalogue. Uh, you're probably wondering who's telling you this wonderful information. Let me tell you of my fellow presenter, if the past was a trough where animals <laughs> got their food, this man would be the kindly farmer cleaning out the sheepy and cowy dribble and spit, laying it with straw, and then in the earliest known example of upcycling and repurposing in the ancient Middle East, he would transform that manger yes, from the French manger, meaning to eat, into a crib with his hay of research, and into it he would lay the baby of the present. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is Professor James Daybell. Thank you, sir. So I'm a cleaner now, am I? Uh, uh, <laughs> well... <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, you may well be wondering who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell the Cleaner co-pilot this episode. Well, let's just say that if he were a baby-related historian, he'd only be the midwife of the past, carefully attending to the pregnant mother of history and so ably delivering new historical life into this world. Yes, that's right, his midwifery skills bring the past to life. Yes, you've guessed it, it's the famous historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis. Hello everyone, midwife of the past here. We are doing the history of babies and it is part of our Christmas theme. Uh, We've done several now. We have done donkeys and elves and babies. We've got wise men coming up and generosity. And if you're interested in this, also do please check out all of the wonderful episodes we have done on Christmas themes in the past. It's our favourite time of year and histories of the unexpected go slightly into overdrive and we get a bit overexcited. Cited and James reads uh, from Dickens quite a lot, uh, but <laughs> all the time. I'm, I'm mixing it up. This I'm mixing it up. This year, Sam. No Dickens at all. Very good. No. Um, uh, hugely enjoyed our recent episode on the history of elves. Uh, fascinating stuff and all about uh, credulity and why you should not necessarily believe what you're told. Uh, Anyway, today we are doing babies. It seems fairly central to the Christmas theme, James. It is, and it's all about the nativity. That's the prompt. But I had Mm. a couple of other hooks that got me thinking about babies. Uh, As I always say at this time of year, I have a little stack of books that I religiously read through. I've already read Christmas Carol, uh, and I think we're recording this on the 13th of December, so I'm already well ahead of myself. I'm currently reading Nancy Mitford's Christmas Pudding, which is an extraordinarily funny book. Uh, There is a baby reference in it, but it is to a small boy who, in the middle of Christmas lunch after eating too many what he describes as chocolate babies. So these are like jelly babies, only made of chocolate. He has to disappear under the table that all the family are eating at and throws up. So it's related to uh, overindulgence. The one story that I wanted to... The other story that I wanted to share with you was another little... uh, chapter from David Sedaris's brilliant Santaland Diaries and this is it literally made me roar out la- roar out loud laughing when I when I read it it is a spoof round robin of an American family called the Dunbars and I don't know whether you go in for that round robin tradition genuinely I hate them they're, they're awful um, you know, people sort of parading what they've been doing. It's worse than the kind of curated lives that people have on Instagram, where everything seems to be glowing and perfect. Anyway, this is a sort of undercutting that, because what hap- what becomes quite apparent very early on is that as they are presenting the family news, there is an addition to the family. And the dad of the family has was fighting in Vietnam before he married the mother... And he had an illegitimate child with an unknown... And an unknown child uh, turns up on his doorstep uh, mm. that year. And the so it's a Vietnamese girl who turns up who basically has no interest other than pleasing her father and getting money from him. And... 
the reason I tell you about this is because of what happens at the end, and it all revolves around the misunderstanding of language. The girl is there day to day, preening herself, doing nothing to help out. The mother has to go and leave the house, and as she leaves, she calls to this girl saying, Watch the baby, watch the baby, watch the baby. And when she comes back, uh, she finds that in fact, a misunderstanding has taken place and the girl has washed the baby, has literally put the baby in a washing machine and pressed go and the baby has been washed. And you can imagine with quite catastrophic circumstances. So those are my... That's where I'm coming from. Wow. Uh, this... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think we should go down the whole sort of infanticide route since it's Christmas. But Oh, well, uh, I'm doing that. That's oh, exactly are. what oh, I'm doing. Oh, excellent. <laughs> excellent. 100%. Well, I have a, I have a really mm. extraordinary um, example that I can give uh, for that. Uh, I've been doing various sort of bits and pieces of reading. Um, and so including uh, an excellent piece by on the history of the toilet by Mark Jenner. And... He's a historian based in York, works on, on, on hygiene and health and water systems. And he described a child, a baby, a little bundle uh, that was discovered in a toilet, uh, a sort of 17th century toilet and that had been disposed of by the mother. Um, so anyway... Anyway, where are you going with babies, Sam Willis? I, well, I don't know. I was going, I'm going to, to pivot and just pick up on what you're saying there. Um, I began by just thinking about the imagery associated with the nativity to see how that might inspire me to think about the past. And uh, first up, it's a it's a very one child issue going on here. There are you know there are no other children. It's a it's a it is a a, a mum and a dad and one child and some animals. And it did make me think that we could explore the uh, uh, China's one child policy, which was in place for thirty five odd years since nineteen seventy nine, and how that really affected um, life in China. Uh, it's really interesting. Um, here, the well, family planning. It was, you know, such a fundamental policy to the People's Republic of, of China, trying to to limit and reduce China's rapidly growing population. Um, so that, anyway, looking, I, I thought we could explore explore that. Um, and then I also thought about carrying babies because in every depiction I've seen, um, Mary is the one holding the child, and it made me realise that you could explore the uh, the changing history of of parenting and how babies are carried and how they are moved around, whether it's in prams or kind of cradles or carrying thing, and who's doing the carrying, whether it's men or it's women. Um, please do get in touch if any of you can find a picture of Joseph carrying Jesus. Uh, I'd be quite interested in seeing that. Um, but more so, the, the whole idea of the nativity and the warmth and the cosiness of what's going on here is why it actually did make me think about infanticide and the opposite of that. So... In every nativity story, it's it's all very, you know, it's it's cosy inside, suggesting it's wild outside. There's never any room at the inn. There's there's threat of death and exposure. It's very frank and very clear in the story. It's not just exposure to the elements. There's kidnapping, there's robbery, there's um, death, there's disease. There's all sorts of ghastly things happening um, in the Bible. And it's all uh, extremely 
it kind of lurks, doesn't it, in the nativity story? Um, and it's worth stopping and thinking about, I think, um, because it's so easy feeling that warmth and that coziness when you're at a nativity nativity um, show and there are people walking around with candles and it's all very warm and candlelit and everything. It's it's the outside, it's the threat of everything there that is being implied that I think is really interesting. Um, and that actually really does link us to the. To, to to what's going on here? It's the it's the care that is given to the baby Jesus by Mary and Joseph, uh, also by the animals as well, by the shepherds, by everyone who's involved. They're all focused, eyes in, often kneeling down, really a hundred percent focused on the child and what's happening here. And you have to see that care within a much broader narrative of people not caring for children because that's why this story has come to place um has, has come to be in many cases it, you, you they didn't just invent this story with all of these themes out of the blue um and infanticide um children dying of exposures are really long it has a really long and established history people were horrified by it it led to all sorts of um, uh, changes in government policy, people raising money to help with infanticide. There's tons and tons of evidence of it. Um, one of the most uh, powerful ones is, is one I've most recently discovered. It is the survival of the surname, especially in Italian and Spanish, of Esposito, which literally means being an exposed one. Uh, and that, you know, really makes you think about the foundlings, the people who were left on the steps of monasteries and orphanages, churches, wherever it may be. Uh, it's certainly a theme that we've explored in histories of the unexpected before, particularly in our history of ribbons, when we were talking about the wonderful foundling hospital in London, where um, where mothers left babies with a little a little ribbon associated with them. Um, we the problem with it studying it is we can never really know the the actual extent of infanticide and what's going on there. But there are there are a huge number of ways that you can um, see how the themes of infanticide has have survived through history. Um, very interesting one I've come across called Fjalla Eivindur, which is an Icelandic. Um, folklore tale. They're a bit like an Icelandic Bonnie and Clyde is one way to think about them. So Ivindur, he's, uh, he's an Icelandic outlaw living in the 18th century. We're, we're still not exactly sure what he did, but there's documentary evidence suggests that he and his wife Halla went into hiding in the mid-1700s after you know a series of, of misdemeanours, let's put it that way. There's also some physical evidence pointing to particular places where they may have lived. Um, it wasn't a brief period of living as outdoors, but some 20 years. Um, now, this story, it's the 18th century, it actually carries on um, and it survives through history. There's a play written about the two by Johann Sigurd Jonsson, um, and it talks about... How, their life just before the couple were actually found by authorities. And one of the things they did just before being discovered by authorities is they hid their child. They hid their infant child, believing that death was preferable for the child than being taken into custody by the authorities, by people other than their parents, but particularly those in authority. Uh, so it's a fascinating chapter in the history of parenting, parental attachment, and also the fear of authority, something which is also very prevalent in the Bible. You've only got to think about Herod and all these threats of killing the firstborn. Authority and children do not go hand in hand, and there's a real hierarchy 
of authority you need to understand when 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 thinking about this in the past you've got the child who is responsible to the to the the parents and the parents to a, a nameless authority above them which i think is absolutely fascinating and that that relationship between higher authority parents and then children you can explore you can take that right and you can apply it to all sorts of different periods over time so here we've got Iceland in the 18th century and what's wonderful about this is there's uh, there's a moment in the play this is the play about about this Icelandic Bolly and Clyde um, and there's a lullaby and this lullaby is still sung today to Icelandic children which if you think about it, it's pretty haunting because it's actually the parents are singing it at the moment they've decided to leave their child to die Sleep, my little love, outside the rain is weeping, mummy keeps watch over your gold, old leg bones and a little treasure chest. Um, those were common Icelandic children's toys. Let's not stay awake through dark nights, there is much that darkness knows, my mind is heavy. Often I've seen the black sand scorching green meadows, in the glacier rumbles deadly deep cracks. Sleep long, sleep tight, it's best to wake up late. Hardship will teach you soon, while the day becomes night, that the people love, lose, cry and mourn. So I think the continuing use of this lullaby is quite interesting. It shows a maybe a, a trivialisation, the forgetting of what was once a very serious issue. And it's it's really worth thinking about things like that when you are when you're looking at the nativity story and you're really focusing on the care that is given to the baby Jesus and to be aware that there is a huge, long and very uh, fascinating and troubling history of exactly the opposite of that of people not caring for babies. Oh, Sam, that was very clever indeed. I think one of the most difficult things in writing the history of babies is actually getting at the child themselves. It's very, very difficult because, you know, of course they are uh, they are illiterate, unable to write for themselves, and so they are constantly being viewed from the perspective of others. But one of the things that I wanted to do with this was actually think about how you can use material culture and objects in particular in order to reconstruct the early life of children. So from childbirth through to early uh, child rearing practices and the kinds of objects that survive that are associated with this social life of the child. And I reached to my reference shelves for two books. Uh, the first is called The Tudors in a Hundred Objects, so jumping on that uh, Hundred Objects bandwagon as a way of studying the past, but also a lovely volume edited by Delia Garrett and Tara Hamling called Shakespeare and the Stuff of Life, Treasures from the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust, which is a beautiful little book organised around the life cycle. So it's really, they've selected 50 objects from the collections of Shakespeare Birthplace Trust and then grouped them into different sections around the life cycle, really thinking about that 
really um, influenced by that seven ages of man from As You Like It in Act Two, uh, Scene Seven. All the world's a stage and the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances and one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. At first the infant mewling and puking in the nurse's arms. And so I thought, why not sort of put these collections together and see what objects they've got? And there were some brilliant objects that I'm going to talk to you about. I'm going to talk to you about a birthing chair. I'm going to talk to you about a high chair. I'm also going to talk to you about a rattle. And if we've got time, I might talk about some paintings and even uh, some dolls, because I think you can get at all sorts of aspects of a baby's life from this. But starting with a birthing chair. And I will put this on the intraweb for you so that you can see it. But imagine, close your eyes and imagine an ordinary wooden chair. Looks a little bit like a, an old-fashioned wooden commode, but without the pan underneath the basin. But what it has is an insert in the middle of the seat that you can pull out. And this, throughout the 16th century, would have been the way in which women would have given birth. Okay, Because it's not until the the reign of louis the 14th in the 17th century in france when women were required to lie down while giving birth and partly so that he could observe the event from behind a, a screen but before that it was incredibly common for women to squat or to crouch down and in that squatting position a chair a birthing chair would enable them to get into the right position and it would give them some support. And so we can get this idea of women being, you know, supported by midwives in giving birth in this way. It's rather like uh, the sort of contemporary techniques nowadays where one of the techniques is that women be on all fours rather than than sort of lying with their on their back and delivering um, like that, that actually being on all fours is much more natural. And I think this gives you a really good idea of the kind of the ways in which women would have would have would have given birth. I think some of the things that are really interesting here is the midwives and I, I started by describing you as a midwife of history at the beginning. I mean this is partly because midwives were the people who in the 16th and 17th century would have been in the birthing chamber and would have been delivering the children. This was not a professional medical responsibility of men and in fact where you have these sort of very learned men such as with uh, with um, Jane Seymour, for example, um, you know, you've got these learned men who don't necessarily have experience and uh, in the birthing chamber and, you know, and Jane Seymour tragically dies less than a fortnight after the birth of Edward VI, presumably because the men didn't realise that she was having a, a sort of an catastrophic hemorrhage uh, and were unable to sort of sort her out but you know one presumes that there were much more experienced midwives who might have been able to deal with that having said that there are examples of midwives who 
you know, seem over hasty. There are accounts of them breaking the membrane with coins or thimbles or even with specially sharpened fingernails. But for many, they're, you know, they seem to be incredibly skillful. And if you look at the statistics of women who actually die during childbirth, it is, it's estimated about only 1% do so. Um, and which is actually, I mean, it sounds a lot, but actually for that period, it's that that's pretty low and it doesn't actually, it doesn't actually get, you know, it isn't bettered until the 1920s. Um, so there we are, Sam. There's why my first uh, example is the, is the, the birthing chair. And of course, I must remind you that you asked about why didn't why aren't there any pictures of Joseph holding uh, baby Jesus? It- cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you it's partly because um husbands weren't supposed to be there uh and it's not until certainly in in uh, in britain it's not until the 1960s when fathers being present at the birth becomes much more fashionable um and before that this was a sort of you know exclusively female zone so women would have family members and friends around known as gossips and there and it would be the the uh, you know the female midwife who'd be who'd be involved now i want to take you from a chair to um go to if you're near a computer google jan steen celebrating the birth uh this is a wonderful picture one of my favorite of uh, steen's pictures um, and Steen was a, a real-life um, 
sort of artist, um, born in 1626 in Leiden in the Netherlands, dying in 1679. And this picture celebrating the birth was dated to about 1664. And it's an extraordinary scene. Um, it On the right, you see a fireplace around which three women are working and next to them on the floor, carelessly discarded are eggshells and various sort of domestic objects. There's a plate a tasty with a bread, bun. bread roll on it. Yeah, delicious. <laughs> but it's a really crowded scene. On the left, this is key, you see a bed in which a woman is lying. So she is undoubtedly the woman who's just given birth. The women around her, her 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 gossips, her sort of family and friends are spoon feeding her. So they are you know, giving her sustenance after uh, she's given birth. What is remarkable, though, is if you have a look in the centre of the picture, centre stage, everything is focused on the baby in the red blanket that he or she is wrapped in, being held uh, not by Joseph, but by the father. Interestingly, uh, the father has a sort of little jerkin on. He's got a, a sort of uh, a sort of very Dutch-looking hat. He's reaching down to a, a purse, a purse of monies, and there's a woman by the fire who's stirring a cauldron of of what looks like some sort of soup or broth, and she's holding her hand out and she's expecting to be paid. So presumably that's the midwife. What's noticeable though is that the husband with grey beard looks you know, looks looks an older father. And if you have a look at the the back of the painting just by the door uh, is standing a sort of long-haired man who is raising two fingers behind the head of the child. Now, these are fingers that signify a cuckold. In other words, somebody who is not the father of the child. And so the whole thing is all about the father presenting himself as the rightful father of the baby. The whole scene is then being undercut by somebody challenging his masculinity and his virility. But it's a really potent painting for all sorts of things that are going on. It, it, was, it was painted in, as I said, in 1664. But actually, if you look at the dating of it, the, the style, the costume, the interior, it's about 20 or 30 years before that, the fashions that it's depicting. But you can see all sorts of things going on here, not only the the birth, the mother, the empty cradle. There's a lot about material culture. There's a lot about the gendering of the birthing chamber. Presumably everyone has sort of gathered in to sort of, you know, welcome uh, the birth. But otherwise it's an all-female zone. So it's quite, it's quite extraordinary that the husband might come in as, an, an, as, a, as a sort of an interloper here. So we've got all sorts of things going on. And it tell, that sort of thing tells us a lot about popular uh, customs at the time. Now, maybe I've got time for one more object, object do you think, Sam? My Absolutely. Well, there, uh, can I do two? What, yeah. uh, the, uh, I want to do... My third one is, in fact, a high chair. And this comes from that beautiful little book on Shakespeare's life. And it is a really ornate wooden high chair. And it's got... It looks like it's... Um, it's got all sorts of uh, embellishments on it. So it's a very impressive um, 
piece. It's got little sort of turns on it and circles, and that would have been made by a special machine that would have put that would have put that. So a you know, so it would have been made by a turner who shaped the wood, very similar to how you might work as a potter that you you shape it um, on a lathe, which is powered by the pumping of a, a treadle or lever. Uh, by by the foot. Well, what's interesting about this is that if you think about that in terms of it tac tactileness, if such a word exists, those kinds of decorations would have also been great for tiny little baby hands to to sort of you know look at. It looks very much like a, a sort of modern high chair if you imagine it in wood. It's got a little sort of foot plate that still survives uh, and a little back. And actually, the way that it works, it doesn't have a bar across the front of it. But this actually would have been pushed up against a normal table. So the child would have then eaten off the table. And you were talking earlier on, Sam, about the hierarchy within the family. And meal times were incredibly important for reinforcing family hierarchy. So the parents and children getting together at a particular time of the day, not only for, you know, physical nourishment and sustenance, actually eating, but also the sort of spiritual sustenance and nourishment that they would have had. So a high chair, you know, talks about maybe is evidence here of how children would have eaten not by themselves, but certainly with the rest of the family during this period. Now, the final one that I want to talk about is a baby rattle. And this is a superb example. This is in a book called The Tudors in a Hundred Objects. I very much recommend uh, you look at this. This is fascinating. Um, not only does it tell us about the importance of giving children giving babies toys and what we have here is an extraordinary example it measures about nine centimeters in length it's a ball shape with a little handle and around the ball shape are four copper alloy bells and these would have been used not only to amuse the child who could then rattle them but also it would then mean that if children sort of got out of eyesight you they would be rattling this and then they'd be you'd be able to to hear it so it's a very sort of interesting uh example but what's even more extraordinary is at the top of it it has something for a child to teeth on so uh, a child would cut their their first teeth and often this is something like you know later on it's something like ivory but what you've got here is in fact a wolf's tooth. Can you imagine that? Giving a child a wolf's tooth that they that they chew on? And the importance here is that this isn't simply something that is practical. The curiosity of this is actually that the rattle serves as an amulet. And that is relating to wolves' teeth being symbolic of supernatural power. So in other words, when they bit into the wolf's teeth the power would be transferred from the animal to the child and I'm reading here in a way that would not only protect it against danger but also ensure its health and happiness um, so and this was a time when you know about a quarter of babies died before their first birthday I mean in, in previous episodes we've talked about when we've talked about death and dying and grief we've talked about Ben Johnson's well-known 
poem lamenting the death of his his son, Farewell Thou Child of My Right Hand and Joy, about his son Benjamin. And we think of Shakespeare's son Hamnet, who died aged 11 in 1596. Um, and, you know, so child child baby death was quite common and so having an amulet that would protect a child like that becomes you know becomes really really important and really interesting and the work that we've done on the history of accidents you know shows you quite how common and tragic infant deaths are and one example that I came across really sort of heartbreaking um incident was a baby that was left in a cot and it was swaddled so that it basically couldn't um it couldn't move so swaddling is where you get a blanket and you tightly wrap it around a child's limbs and arms so that they can't move and while the mother is away it f gets fatally injured by a scavenging wild pig that enters the house in her absence and presumably sort of gorges uh, on the child so there we are, Sam, a history of Tudor and Stuart children from the perspective of material culture. Wonderful stuff. I liked your gorges on a child bit. Um, that's pretty, <laughs> that's pretty... Have, you, have you ever eaten a baby, James? Only a jelly baby, Sam. Ah, funny you should say so, James. Oh, um, excellent. Yeah. I was um, I've become slightly obsessed about eating babies. Ah, you were Jonathan not, Swift, not not human babies. Um, no. Turkeys didn't know this. Uh, many of them on our Christmas dinner, they're just twelve weeks old. Hmm. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Kind of counts as a baby. Yes, it's a baby. It's a baby turkey. They haven't even finished growing. Ah. And um, if you have an elderly one, then they do get a bit tough. They're, they're not so good eating. So everyone sits down to enjoy your turkey dinner. If you're a, a non-vegetarian, um, then you're eating a baby turkey. Uh, however, it did make me think a little bit more, James, about uh, eating babies. And as you say, uh, how you could do this is it, the um, jelly babies. Fascinating history. Had no idea about this at all. Really, really interesting. So the original design is made by Friars of Lancashire. And they got an Austrian confectionist to try and make them a jelly bear. Right. Came out wrong. Came out what wrong. Everyone was like, well, that doesn't look like a bear. It looks like a baby. So they became known as Jelly Babies. But before they became known as Jelly Babies, there was a period in which they were called Unclaimed Babies. And this goes back to our foundlings, our history of people abandoning their children. It was such a part of life. I mean, people would, would, would um, you know, knew all about this. So I think particularly up in the... Uh, in poor industrial towns and certainly linked with the north there is a link here between um the the invention of sweets in lancashire the confectionery industry in lancashire um and poor industrialized towns of the north in the early 1900s and um the abandonment of babies because people just couldn't cope with the idea of bringing up a child they didn't have the money they didn't have the resources they couldn't give that child the res the support they needed so for a very long time they became known as unclaimed babies it didn't last or actually it didn't last very long but there is certainly a period um in which this is clear and which it is true and um, there is documentary evidence of it. One of them is here from the early 1900s. It's an edition of the Burnley Express. 
and it describes various gifts given by the mayor of Berlin. There is no date here, but presumably this is to do with the First World War. Everything that is being sent to the troops, by the way, is being bought in Burnley, so that it will be appreciated that the mayor's effort, besides providing comforts for the boys at the front or somewhere in England, is also lending a helping hand to local tradespeople. Each parcel contains wooltees. I don't know what that is. I really want to know. W-O-O-L-T-I-E-S. Wool ties, sweets, cigarettes and chewing gum. Sweets, I learn, are preferred to chocolate, and the sweets which are in greatest demand are those which we all know as unclaimed babies. Over £50 of these sweets have already been purchased. So there we are. There's an interesting link here. And this is all all to do with Christmas. I suspect these... um, these gifts are being sent to the troops around Christmas in northern France in the First World War. And so there is a, a little history here, a little link between the history of babies and the uh, industrialisation of the north and particularly the Lancashire confectionery industry. Oh, I'm a, I'm a head biter offer of jelly babies. Oh, are you? Yes, that's, <laughs> a my, that's my preferred... <laughs> that's my preferred... <laughs> Modus so operandi. <laughs> it is my preferred way of, of eating a jelly baby. Now, to end, uh, I'm getting all festive again because I've been reaching for my reference works, including the brilliant volume by put out by the British Library, uh, A Literary Christmas, an anthology. And I was leafing through this going, what can I think of for... Uh, babies and of course the nativity which we've talked about in passing and we've talked all about over this series of special festive episodes of histories of the unexpected for 2021 there is a section here on the nativity and the world's greatest or the country's greatest poets uh, have put pen to paper to leave some beautiful lines about the nativity Listen to this one by G.K. Chesterton, A Christmas Carol. The Christ child lay on Mary's lap, his hair was like a light. O oh, weary, weary were the world, but here is all aright. The Christ child lay on Mary's breast, his hair was like a star. O oh, stern and cunning are the kings, but here the true hearts are. The Christ child lay on Mary's heart, his hair was like a fire. O weary, weary is the world, but here the world's desire. The Christ child stood on Mary's knee, his hair was like a crown, and all the flowers looked up at him, and all the stars looked down. And this one from Elizabeth Barrett Browning, from an extract from The Virgin Mary to the Child Jesus. We sat among the stalls at Bethlehem, the dumb kin from their fodder turning them, softened their horned faces to almost human gazes toward the newly born. The simple shepherds from the star-lit brooks brought visionary looks, as yet in their astonied hearing rung the strange sweet angel tongue, the magi of the east in sandals worn, knelt reverent, sweeping round with long pale beards, their gifts upon the ground, the incense, myrrh and gold, these baby hands were impotent to hold, so let all earthlies and celestials wait upon thy royal state, sleep, sleep, my kingly one. There's another brilliant one by John Milton from 
on the morning of Christ's nativity. And then I will leave you with one final one, which is John Donne's nativity. This is beautiful. Immensity cloistered in thy dear womb now leaves his well-beloved imprisonment. There he hath made himself to his intent, weak enough now into our world to come. But, oh, for thee, for him, hath thin no room. Yet lay him in this stall, and from the Orient stars and wise men will travel to prevent the effects of Herod's jealous general doom. Seest thou, my soul, with thy faith's eye, how he, which fills all place, yet none holds him, doth lie? Was not his pity towards thee wondrous high, that would have need to be pitied by thee? Kiss him, and with him into Egypt go, with his kind mother, who partakes thy woe. So there we are, Sam, something very festive. Uh, and nativity related to end. Loved it, loved it. Made me feel all Christmassy. Oh, that's um, what we like. <laughs> thank you all guys for listening. There's our history of babies. I sense, James, there was a great deal more we could have done with that. Oh, yes. Mm, absolutely. Um, we should do conception. Oh, that would be good. Yes. Wouldn't it? Hmm. Yes. Well, we'll see if we've got time to fit that in before Christmas. We may not, in which case we'll put it aside for next year. Guys, thank you all so much for listening. Do please follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And if you're interested in maritime and naval history, the history of the sea, do please listen to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Oh, the Mariner's Mirror is a superb podcast. Now, you should all go out and listen to it alongside Histories of the Unexpected. But if you want to follow <laughs> me on social media, you can follow me on Twitter at James Daybell. You can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Instagram. We are on Facebook. We have an all-singing, all-dancing Uber website called historiesoftheunexpected.com. So check us out there and you can find our whole back catalogue. You can also, although it's probably a little late to order for Christmas now, but certainly as a New Year's present, you should definitely bequeath somebody uh, some signed copies of our Histories of the Unexpected books. So check that out. Also, if at this festive time of year you are feeling particularly charitable and want to support the good fellows at Histories of the Unexpected in their endeavour to change the way in which we study the past, then become a patron and head over to patreon.com. Anything that you can give us to support what we're doing, very gratefully received. But meanwhile, have a cool Yule, if that is still uh, at all fashionable to say. It sounds like something from the 1970s, but we're all about the past here. Have a wonderful time and hope that you are safe and well wherever you are. Take care, guys. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.